Hey, if you like Pulse Check, there's a simple thing you can do to help us keep producing shows. Recommend it to a friend or colleague who works in healthcare or who's interested in health policy, politics, opioids, one of the issues that we cover here. Truly, take a moment right now before you forget and send them a link to the show. I think the world can be divided into two groups of people, those of us who listen to podcasts and those of us who still haven't discovered them yet. Help your friends discover this show. Simply put, our current system may be working for many, but it's not working for patients and it's not working for the taxpayers. Change is possible, change is necessary, and change is coming. Thank you very much. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Secretary Alex Azar laying out his priorities on value-based care in a speech to hospitals this week. So what is value-based care, and how is the healthcare industry reacting to Azar's remarks? My guest today, Karen Murphy, the chief innovation officer at Geisinger Health System, who's also Pennsylvania's health secretary and a former Obama official, is well-positioned to answer those questions. And you'll hear from her in the second half of the podcast. But first, my colleagues Rachna Pradhan and Sarah Carlin-Smith will join me for a quick roundup of this week's news from the latest state changes to Medicaid to the Trump administration's statements and actions on opioids. And of course, you can always email me at ddiamondpolitico.com about who you'd like to hear from next. Karen Murphy, today's guest, was a listener suggestion. And now here's our news roundup. I'm now joined in Politico's glass-enclosed newsroom by Sarah Carlin-Smith, our Ace Pharma reporter back from the AHIP conference. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. And Rachana Pradhan, our states reporter who's looking especially fashionable today for a secret photo shoot that we're not allowed to talk about on the podcast. You will see more soon about that. Very cryptic. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Thank you, Dan, for having me. We're not allowed to scoop Rachna's Rachna's photo news. Um, <laughs> one one big story this week has to do with what's coming out of the states and specifically on Medicaid. And Rach, this is right in your wheelhouse. You had the scoop here last week. The Trump administration on Monday said that Arkansas would be the third state allowed to impose work requirements in its Medicaid program. There's some quirks in terms of timing. But is is this just the new normal, Rach? Every week there's going to be – every month there's going to be a new state allowed by the Trump administration to change its program like this? I'm sure that every Republican governor who has asked for a work requirement would love it if every week CMS said yes to them. We'll see about the timing. But I do think, yes, um, work requirements are pretty standard, honestly, at this point, And it's no secret that um, the administration is saying yes because they've made it clear that that's a goal of theirs. Uh, that being said – we do have litigation that's out there. So whether they will actually go into effect, we have to see. Um, I would say that, you know, Arkansas in particular was interesting, not just because they got a work requirement, but because they were, I think, perhaps the first instance that I can think of where a Republican governor asked the administration for something and didn't get it. Um, uh, Asa Hutchinson wanted to uh, essentially lower the number of people who are eligible for Medicaid expansion in that state by capping the income limit at a lower level. Um, CMS didn't explicitly say no, but they punted on it. Um, And I think my understanding based on talks I've had with people is that they're very unlikely to, they being the administration, uh, to grant that. So 
you know, I think red states aren't going to get everything they want, which is which is interesting. So, and there are future things that we can talk about on future podcasts that um, might pose big dilemmas for the Trump administration also. Arkansas is also significant because it is one of those states that had been a litmus test for whether Republican governors or Republican legislatures would expand Medicaid under the Obama administration, the special. I mean, that was a, a, a Democratic governor was in office at that time. But yes, Arkansas is a very red state. Um, and so, you know, the situation in a lot of these, um, a lot of the country actually is uh, state legislatures tend to be uh, much more conservative, I think, than people realize. Um, and it's it's not always easy for them to, to consider these types of things, uh, like expanding a safety net program. So they need to come up with ways to sort of get political buy-in. And that was the earliest example, I think, of, of how um, it could be done. Yeah, the Republican strategy of going after the lower profile races and controlling some of the state houses, even with Democratic governors. So beyond Arkansas, and we've also seen Medicaid work requirements imposed in uh, Indiana, as well as in K- Kentucky, number well as, one. Where, where <laughs> else? What other states are we watching? Like, what's the next domino to fall here? So I think so. There are lots of states that have that have asked um, for similar uh, rules. So Utah is one. Uh, Maine is another. Uh, there are so many, I can't even think of, uh, the, it's over a dozen easily. North Carolina has a proposal pending. Um, the interesting thing now, I think, at least when it comes to the employment rules, is it's not just states that have expanded their Medicaid programs under the ACA that want work requirements. There are states like Utah that want one, but they don't have nearly as many um, you know, so-called able-bodied adults, childless adults that are covered by their program and it's unclear whether CMS will let um, those states that didn't expand coverage under the 20, you know, in 2014 or later um, impose similar uh, work rules. You know, Alabama also wants one, but they basically have pretty much hardly anyone um, in the same coverage category. So that's a big question mark, I think, and one we'll definitely be watching. Yeah, and, and we should just underline the point here that advocates have been especially concerned about work requirements for the potential impact that folks who might be disabled, folks folks who might have had problems getting into the market, the job market, for a legitimate reason. One of the biggest issues in the states has been the opioid epidemic. Karen Murphy, former health secretary for Pennsylvania, talks about that issue on the second half of this podcast. But Sarah, you've been embedded on this beat. You were at the White House last week. You've been tracking the data coming out. A new study this week from the CDC seems to indicate pretty concerning trends for the epidemic. Right. So CDC just put out a report this week saying that hospitalizations from opioid overdoses have jumped 30 percent between July 2012 and this fall. That's um, in 45 states. So it's not all states, but some of the states are actually doing much worse than this. So in general, the Midwest saw a 70 percent increase in hospitalizations. Wisconsin jumped 109 percent. Illinois jumped 66 percent. I think it's just concerning that we're at this stage where for a number of years now, we know this is a really um, bad issue and we're not, we're not, it's, not, it's getting worse. It's not getting better, even while there's been a lot of efforts to take steps um, in the health system to get doctors to prescribe less for insurers to change their practices. 
There's obviously work going on in the law enforcement side to kind of control the flow of illegal drugs, but clearly we haven't gotten a grip on things. There was a study that you pointed me to that also came out this week on whether opioids, again, another reminder that maybe they've been overprescribed for common conditions. Right. So this study looked at opioids versus non-opioid medicines, pretty common medicines like Advil, Tylenol, other um, easy to kind of access pain relievers for like hip, knee, back pain, and studied patients for a year and found that opioids were no better than these common alternatives, which were in this study were seen as kind of safer. Their patients had less adverse events. And it's pretty significant because one of the criticisms of um, how opioids got approved in the U.S. to begin with is they were studied in very short studies, usually um, maybe three months at the most. And yet they've evolved to being used in chronic pain for patients for years. And there's no proof that that's actually um, a good thing for patients, that it reduces pain, that the whatever benefits it does has outweighs the risks. And again, people have sort of been harping at that for years, but the fact that there's actually data now to show this, it's just one study, but I think that might really um, perhaps be something that helps change people's perspective. And prescribing habits. This data sets up the backdrop. In the foreground, we've got the White House and politicians in the past few weeks readying either legislation in Congress or holding major events to talk about their strategy. You covered the White House opioid summit last week. The president spoke. All of the top healthcare officials were assembled there. Did we learn anything new from that summit or was it yet another big public appearance with not a lot of actual change behind it? So I would divide the summit into two parts. The first was the major part of the summit that Kelly and Conway led Um, The health secretary, Alex Azar, was there, Ben Carson from HUD, Jeff Sessions, um, the attorney general's office spoke. And it was, um, I think it was informative for advocates and public health people, policy people concerned about the crisis. They found it to be kind of a good dialogue about what the administration's doing. There was nothing particularly new that we learned there or announced, but they saw it as kind of a good step. Um, you know, that everybody's convening on the issue and thinking about how to tackle it. Then at the very end, the president came up and spoke, and he sort of changed the tone of the whole day. He um, talked about other countries that essentially what he said was the ultimate penalty. They use the ultimate penalty to control drug use, and they essentially, he was alluding to executing people that traffic drugs. And said we should do that here. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because (laughs) – Just just to jump in, our president (laughs) suggested that perhaps we should execute people who deal drugs or at least alluded to that possibility. Correct. He certainly um, made that very strong allusion to, you know, again, this ultimate penalty. In the Philippines. Um, In other countries. And he's um, talked about that before, according to reporting from Axios in private. So – um, folks were a little primed for – knew that he was thinking about that the past few weeks. But again, it just really rubs people the wrong way because in the U.S. we've had this history in the 80s of imprisoning tons of people for the drug ec- epidemic, crack, cocaine, other um, drug crises, and then nothing has really changed. And people I talk to say, well, you put a drug per- dealer in jail, someone else is going to take their place if there's a market. And then once all those people come out of jail, they have these felonies, they can't get jobs. So what do they do? They go back into selling drugs, 
what happens there? The price of drugs go down because there's more drug dealers. So then it just hasn't actually changed and the crisis. And there's concern, too. It's one thing to go after, you know, a really big trafficking kind of kingpin. It's another thing to put somebody who's struggling with addiction and committing a crime because they're just they need to get drug to feed their addiction in jail when maybe we should just actually treat them instead and then they can be a productive member of society. Obviously, striking rhetoric that bears watching, especially as it might affect policy. Last question here, yes or no. After all of the scrutiny around the White House, whether it's actually doing anything on opioids, and Lord knows Politico has written those stories, is it fair to say that with these summits, with some funding included in the most recent presidential budget request, the Trump administration is finally doing something meaningful on opioids, yes or no? I would say yes with a caveat. Can I have a caveat? Um, I think they're making a little bit of progress, but um, it's still I think people would like to see improvement. Um, The budget request for money was good, but right now I think Congress is kind of leading more on the crisis than the administration. Congress Congress holds the purse strings ultimately too. Um, One last thought on the opioid issue that then plays into our, our last topic, which is Alex Azar, HHS secretary at the opioid summit on Thursday. Friday traveled to Ohio to attend um, uh, a listening session and and meet patients and mothers at this uh, center for opioid recovery and and drug-addicted babies, so taking the the message on the road. But Azar himself has been very visible in his five weeks, six weeks, formally as HHS secretary. And I want to read to both of you and, and listeners, this was the agenda, not just from Azar, but from other top political leaders this week, Monday. Azar spoke at the Federation of American Hospitals Conference on Value-Based Care. Tuesday, Seema Verma, the CMS chief, was out at HIMSS, the the giant health IT conference in Vegas, rolling out new initiatives related to data ownership and and any health reform. Wednesday, today as we record this podcast, Scott Gottlieb is at AHIP, the insurer conference, the FDA chief, delivering a a major speech that we'll talk to in a moment, talk about in a moment. Uh, Thursday, Alex Azar at AHIP himself expected to give a, a big speech on, on health reform. And then Friday, David Shulkin, the VA secretary, is going to be out at HIMSS speaking on, on coordinating care for veterans. So a lot of visibility among the leadership. We've all watched either parts or all of these speeches. And Sarah, you were at Gottlieb's speech at AHIP this morning. Why was it so striking in its tone and, and remarks? So um, Scott Gottlieb heads the FDA. FDA normally tries to stay out of insurance drug pricing issues. Um, so it's just it was unique that he was at, even at an AHIP conference to begin with. And then he took to the stage and really delivered a pretty harsh critique on the current system of how drug pricing and rebates work between brand drug companies and insurers, essentially saying that the rebate system is – is leading to profits for both drug companies and insurers at the expense of patients getting access to cheaper medicines. And that's a pretty bold statement in general, but coming from an FDA commissioner doesn't normally wade in on these issues. I think that even adds to the um, situation at hand. Um, And we know that HHS, which has more power and CMS than FDA to actually weigh in on this situation, has been looking at changes in Part D and Medicare to think about how they can change that rebating process and make sure patients actually benefit from any savings negotiated on drug pricing. So perhaps it's another hint that there's more to come from the government there. 
One thing that struck me about all the speeches this week is is just the weight of the remarks that were delivered. So Gottlieb making the striking speech to the insurers. Azar coming out on Monday and talking about value-based care, which there have been lots of questions about what the Trump administration would do. This is a pretty big issue. Seema Verma, joined actually by Jared Kushner in, in Vegas to talk about the data initiative. I mean, these are this is like playing the hits almost in terms of the topics, the audiences. And obviously, the Trump administration didn't schedule hymns this week or schedule AHIP. But it seems like they are now aggressively grabbing these opportunities to get their message across. We've covered this administration for over a year. Does it strike you, Rachna, as as different in any significant way on how they're communicating with the public? I do think um, Secretary Azar is much more public-facing than former Secretary Price was. But, of course, last year, um, a lot of time was spent on, uh, you know, apart from Secretary Price's travels, which obviously we have written extensively about, um, top administration officials were spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill just because ACA repeal and replace was the big topic of discussion and it was taking up a lot of time. So, you know, when you're trying to shepherd a huge piece of uh, legislation through in the early months of, of uh, the that, I guess, that year, I can't even remember what year it is, 2017, um, <laughs> you know, they uh, are not going to have as much time necessarily for big public speeches. Sure. It, it, it soaks up their time. It soaks up the news cycle. I, I would say, though, and maybe this is just just letting people in on, on the window behind the scenes, we have been approached with pen and pad offers where reporters get to sit down with the secretary, Secretary Azar. That's happened a couple times now. Didn't happen at all with Secretary Price. And right. we've also been getting more frequent heads up of here's where they're going to be speaking and here's a very detailed readout of what uh, what HHS officials And we know where they're going in advance now, which also didn't happen for the first uh, months of the Trump administration. With yes, HHS I, I remember CMS. trying to reconstruct schedules of, of certain <laughs> officials and where they were traveling. Um, and, and you have to travel to the AHIP conference this afternoon, Rachana. So thank you for making time to join Pulse Check. And Sarah, thanks for being here too. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for Fine. having me. Karen Murphy has had a three-decade-plus career in healthcare, often in major positions of leadership. Right now, she's the chief innovation officer at Geisinger Health System, a well-regarded healthcare network in Pennsylvania. Before that, she was the state secretary of health. And before that, she was a top official at the CMS Innovation Center, overseeing the State Innovation Models Initiative. We sat down this week to talk about Karen's work in Pennsylvania, in the Obama administration, and at Geisinger. But I also wanted her to help me make sense of HHS Secretary Alex Azar's most recent remarks. Big topic in the news this week, value-based care. Secretary Alex Azar came out with a major speech saying his priorities for value-based care are, are real and laid out what the Trump administration wants to do. And I do want to get to that. But first, not everyone is going to know the term value-based care. So imagine we're at a cocktail party, a really nerdy cocktail party. How would you define value-based care in a casual context? I think, Dan, the best way to describe it is really in the context of how we get paid now in healthcare. So we're paid for many, many years on a fee-for-service payment schedule, which means we get paid for what we do, not how we do it. The value-based uh, proposition is paying for healthcare delivery services on value, in other words, how good it is. Um, not just about how many times you do it. Why did it take so long 
to get to that realization in healthcare that we don't want to pay just for volume, but for outcome? I think we we have the conversation the last 10 years has been uh, what I'll say rejuvenated. So I think there was a time back in the 90s more so um, based on cost pressures than quality. But there was a time back in the 90s when capitation um, managed care started to um, evolve. You're talking about HMOs. Yes, HMOs and, and really even uh, open paneled managed care uh, capitation. I mean, back in probably the late 90s, uh, many primary care physicians, whether they were affiliated or just impaneled in health maintenance organizations, received a, a, a capitation payment every month as opposed to being paid for how many times they saw the patient. So there was that push for HMOs, mm-hmm. which obviously I say the word HMO and it's like a dirty word mm-hmm. to many mm-hmm. people. They didn't like that push mm-hmm. that constrained their access. So it went away for some time. Mm-hmm. Now we have this push under value-based care, which sounds a little better and is framed a little differently. Mm-hmm. The Obama administration was a major champion of these efforts, and you were an official helping push the value-based care movement. What was the selling point to the industry on why it was time to pursue these value-based care initiatives? I think the fact that this health care delivery system, given the cost structure and what we receive from the healthcare care industry system, that everyone uh, would acknowledge that the current system is unsustainable. So I think we've all come to the conclusion it, the sustainability is in question. I think what we haven't figured out quite yet is how to change that trajectory. So despite all our efforts, which we've all worked very hard, and I had the honor, as you said, of working with the federal government and the state government, uh, and now in the private sector, we all believe in value. We all believe in that payment. Um, But heretofore, really a solution that's generalizable to the whole industry um, and really generalizable by more than just a region Um, has been elusive. The industry made billions of dollars in investments on things that were related to Mm value-based care, acquiring physician practices Mm -hmm. to assemble accountable care organizations, making other hires, investing in IT. And under the Obama administration, it seemed like this was the commitment. It would have been picked up by the Clinton Mm -hmm. administration. Then the Trump administration comes in. There were some questions. Even though this was seen as something bipartisan, the Trump administration was quiet on the issue and then paused on some efforts. Azar this week said, uh, quote, there's no turning back when it comes to value-based care. Is that the kind of reassurance the industry needs? And I'm asking you not just as an Obama official, but as someone who's now at a health system again. Uh, well, I think that at the health, on the health system levels, we've continued to push. So there, was, there has not been a pause. So I work for Geisinger uh, Health. And our um, culture is that of driving towards value. So they're really, while we think, um, particularly, and I understand that, having worked in the federal and state government, um, we tend to think that we're leading the private sector. Uh, that's not always the case. So I think the private sector has continued over the last 18 months. I was very happy to hear the secretary um, it, Speaking of value-based payment, I think, um, again, recognizing the current status quo is not sustainable. And we look forward to seeing what comes out of um, CMS and under the direction of the secretary and also um, the place that I love so much, CMMI. The Medicare Innovation Center. 
when you were at CMMI, you ran the State Innovation Models yes. Initiative, the $900 million program to help states essentially set up their own mm-hmm. laboratories of how healthcare could work. Again, sticking to the cocktail party format. And again, it's a cocktail party. We're drinking. There's a loud band in the background. What is the simple way of explaining the SIM program that you ran? So, Dan, I don't know if there was a band playing in the background and everybody was drinking, they'd want to hear about SIM, but I'll give it a shot. You're in Washington, um, D.C. Yeah. This is actually my Saturday night is pretty typical <laughs> yes. talking about health policy. But I will give it a shot. So the State Innovation Models Initiative, the vision for that was to inculcate innovation in state government. So for state government, it's very challenging because, first of all, state government, most states don't have the resources that they need to actually innovate. Secondly, um, these programs are very challenging. So you're talking about innovating the regulatory side and um, the, uh, the Medicaid side. I think the issue that we tried so hard um, was to assist the states in both educating them to pull their to have the ability to pull their policy and regulatory levers um, to improve health, improve healthcare delivery, and and lower cost. So we took almost close to a billion dollars, worked with 38 states and territories, and offered them both the financial support and technical assistance to hopefully launch uh, innovative programs. There's been some talk that the SIM program, the State Innovation Models program, isn't going to continue. Do you think it has run its course? I think that all of the innovation, uh, I think all innovation has to be evaluated. Um, and I think that's one critical aspect of um, first generation that, that we may have um, we may have missed a little bit is evaluation of innovations. So I think at this point, if they, the federal government has figured out there's a different way to aid states, um, then I, I really do believe that they are going to continue because states are such great incubators for innovation. And also, um, much, of the, uh, much of the Medicaid program is led by the state, although it's a federal-state partnership. So it may not be SIM that they um, invest in, but um, I'm sure that they will continue some investment in states as we move forward. And really with the new waivers, um, the 1332 waivers, um, I think with all the work that's being done and the changes um, in Medicaid, it's pretty hard to avoid going down that Pulling that back up for a second, mm-hmm. the 1332 are the innovation waivers That's right. that the Trump administration has been really from the first day right. committed to giving states more power and taking it away Flexibility. from. Flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. So that 1332s, though, were written in the Affordable Care Act, but they just went into effect in uh, January of 2017. So as you say, the goal is really to provide uh, states with greater flexibility. Speaking of Secretary Azar, at an event in Ohio last week to talk about the opioid epidemic, he took a question on medical marijuana, and his response was interesting. He said, quote, no such thing as medical marijuana, which was a little bit of a departure from what we've seen from federal officials and and state officials in Pennsylvania, the state you led. There is a formal medical Mm -hmm. marijuana program. So, Karen, I'm curious, is this still a controversial issue that medical marijuana is a tactic, is an avenue to potentially defray the opioid epidemic? The evidence suggests that when states uh, implement medical marijuana programs, that there's definitely a decrease in the number of opioid prescriptions. 
if you look at the conditions, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, severe, um, there's 17 of them. Um, pain is one of them, PTSD. There's several that may require an opioid prescription that now this is another tool in the toolbox. I don't say that it's the answer to the opioid crisis, but I do think that if we can do anything that's going to decrease the number of opioid prescriptions um, that are written, then we have a, a duty to do that. I think there are um, medical marijuana programs in some circles are um, questionable. I think that um, we are looking towards, uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, we have a research component to the program. So hopefully we'll get some good uh, research and the evidence will um, hopefully support the use or teach us how it should be used appropriately. In defense of the Secretary's statement, it is true that FDA has not said That's right. that marijuana has these That's benefits. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's also been deep concern among advocates, and I've talked to a number of mm-hmm. them, that the Trump administration is looking for ways to roll back marijuana protections. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, not a fan of marijuana. Another effort you led as Secretary of Health was around prescription drug monitoring, mm-hmm. the, the PDMP program. Is there another tactic beyond PDMPs, beyond making medical marijuana more available, that we should really be focused on from a public health perspective to fight the opioid epidemic? This epidemic is so complex um, that I don't think there are single tactics, but I do think um, strategically approaching uh, the epidemic and really monitoring how effective we are, and I think it's different for different sectors. So I think prevention and education before we even get here. Uh, um, obviously, for the last 30 years, we didn't hit the education um, as hard as we should have, both as an industry and a country, um, I, I think, from the policy perspective. I think we have to fund money for that. I think access to medication-assisted treatment right now has been uh, demonstrated as one of the ways that we can save lives. Um, I think the other part is really we have to come together as the policymakers, the health systems, the community agencies. I think they are uh, our community um, communities coming together. I think if it were any other public health crisis, I think we would have seen far more collaboration a lot sooner um, and far more action than we uh, than we have, and hopefully we're getting there. So, what made it different about this crisis? Why were opioids not the rallying point that we might have seen over some other public health issue? Stigma. And blame of patients? I think, no, I think stigma of the disease. I think people were slower to, um, I think people were slower to seek treatment. I think they were slower to seek treatment for their family. Um, And I think that really um, fueled the, um, I think that really fueled the acceleration of the epidemic. Um, and I think mental health and behavioral health issues as a whole just haven't received. We had a bigger response to Ebola um, in this country than we have uh, drug addiction. And part of that's because I guess the visual of Ebola is so real and scary, mm-hmm. the bleeding from the eyes. Opioid addiction is quiet and, and often hidden behind. I think that's right. So in Pennsylvania, though, when you think about it, we're losing 14 people a day on opioid death. 14 people a day. So how could it be in our society today that we had a hard time getting our arms around this? 
Um, at Geisinger, we're thrilled um, leading a, a group of, of uh, professionals across the organization um, that has come together to do just that, a strategic plan for the health system, um, so that we can measure our, we can measure our progress, uh, see what's working, and if it's not working, then try another strategy, but um, really putting the resources to this crisis. I've asked this of other Pulse Check guests before. Where do you think we are in combating the crisis? Is this still the beginning? Are we making headway? Are we talking about 20 more years of opioid epidemic deaths? I think it's, we're not at the beginning. Um, I think the last three years, um, I, I would say the national and state discussion and now the discussion, I think it has hit so many people that um, I think that it clearly, everyone clearly has taken the opioid crisis very seriously. Everyone, policymakers, communities, um, it's ravaged so many lives. So I would say to you that I think we're in, uh, we're not in the middle yet, but I would say that maybe of a marathon, we might have crossed the fifth middle or the fifth mile. And I think that um, when I, I do think it's going to be around for a very long time. Um, I, I, I'm praying not decades, but I think it's probably decades. But I think now we have to continue to focus on our kids um, and make sure that they understand what this, um, the ravage of this disease is. If we're at the fifth mile of the marathon, that means there's still more than 80% to go. And the but second half not, is always harder. It's not being, it's not at the beginning. And I, I don't think so. I think we're going to pick up momentum. I really do. Um, I, I think we're going to start seeing with all these actions. Um, I think now we have the attention on pharma. So um, I, I think I think we'll make progress. I'm a, I really, for the first time, am optimistic. We've talked about your federal role and your state role. Let's, let's kind of follow that through because, as you mentioned, you're now at Geisinger a health system that is well-regarded in, in health care. When I was at the advisory board consulting firm, we must have cited Geisinger and all of our case studies over and over again, the warranty on heart mm -hmm. surgery, which was groundbreaking, the idea mm -hmm. that patients, if they had complications, were covered by this warranty for a certain amount of time. What are the efforts, what are the tactics that you are most excited about, especially in your portfolio as Geisinger's chief innovation officer? We are really excited at Geisinger, Dan, to stand up the Steele Institute for Health Innovation. So Geisinger, terrific organization, reputation for innovation, um, but had innovation going on across the system in many different places. So our goal with the Steele Institute is really to pull all of the innovation that's currently happening um, it, with across Geisinger, but also taking it to the second generation. So we look at the first generation, probably the last 12 years, um, nationally and throughout the industry. Um, we're ho we, we have a different focus for the second generation. So our different focus, first of all, is to define what is innovation at Geisinger. Because innovation, believe it or not, means different things to different individuals. So we, that was the first thing that we said we had to do. So we define um, innovation at Geisinger as a fundamentally different approach and I always repeat, a fundamentally different approach to solving a problem that has quantifiable outcomes. Now, we don't make the distinction whether they're good or bad, but that we can quantify what it is that we're trying to do. We're working in four verticals. Uh, we're working in health, which is we have our fresh food pharmacy. We have uh, Springboard Health in Scranton that we're working on, like a public health 3.0. Um, the Karen DeSalvo idea. The Karen idea. DeSalvo yeah. idea. Um, 
the Fresh Food Pharmacy addresses food insecurity for diabetics, and we're, we're actually using food to treat diabetics and lower their hemoglobin A1Cs. Um, we're working under the vertical that we're calling value, um, and that includes payment, uh, new payment models. Um, it also includes behavioral economics. economics. Uh, we're looking at care delivery and environmental health. So uh, we know that in Pennsylvania, health is impacted by uh, environmental factors, such as air quality, um, such as Lyme disease, such as Zika. So we'll be looking at, we have an environmental research um, institute at Geisinger. So we'll be working across those four uh, verticals. Leveraging artificial intelligence, I think that gets me really excited. The possibility of not only, um, not only does it get me excited in terms of just because it's a jazzy thing to do, but I think it really has the potential um, to lower cost and improve quality. So improve quality because of what artificial intelligence offers us on the clinical side um, and really impacts it has the ability to impact us on the cost size by improving our business processes. I've been hearing for years about the potential of IBM's Watson, mm -hmm. which is one of the artificial intelligence mm -hmm. tools that people point to, the potential of Watson to go in and make these diagnoses and get, get quality outcomes. There has been real question, though, as to whether Watson and these other AI tools are actually leading to anything or they're just more hype than reality. And I think as the technology gets better, and I think we're, we're putting uh, an awful lot of work in, or an awful lot of emphasis on machine learning, um, hopefully we will, uh, we will be able to answer that question. I think we also have to answer the question, of how are we going to clinically evaluate what comes out of artificial intelligence? So that's a whole different story. But I do think uh, to bend the cost curve, um, I think the cost curve much of our cost goes into is labor cost, and our business processes are tremendously inefficient. We currently probably have floors and floors in every hospital of um, individuals that are doing coding, processing paper, um, and, and doing, uh, whether they're doing it, or not, whether it's automated or not, it's inefficient. So perhaps um, other industries have seen positive impact of AI on business process processes, so hopefully we will too. When it comes to AI, are we at the five-mile mark of the marathon run, the two-mile mark? Uh, uh, under the five. Yeah. Under in, the five. In the starting blocks. Um, a question that I've always wrestled with in healthcare and innovation, and I'm glad I get to ask it of an innovation officer, you mentioned there are different definitions mm -hmm. of innovation. Do we talk too much about, quote, innovation, there's the Innovation Center at Medicare. There are the innovation labs at different hospitals and at different foundations. Like, where do we get to innovation saturation? I think, Dan, I took this, when I took this job, I went around um, the country and talked to national thought leaders about innovation. And um, I came up with, if you've seen one innovation center, you've seen one. Um, I think we have a duty, this industry right now, when we're spending the percentage of G GDP that we are, we have an obligation that we must look at a fundamentally different approach to healthcare. Um, so there is a paper um, that recently came out that I'll share with you from two authors, from your alma mater, actually, on the move to value, Lawton Burns. And he said... My alma mater being University of Pennsylvania. Pen University yeah. of Pennsylvania, Mark Pauley. And um, they went through all of, a uh, in, very interesting paper, went through all of the approaches to value, moving from volume to value and transformation. Um, 
And at the end of the paper, they offered a strategy that they said maybe there's a big hope. And I'm, I'm probably not going to get it entirely right, but this is what he said, um, that we can always have the big hope that somewhere, someone will come up with either a payment model or a management style that will change, the, that it decrease the, the cost curve without harming quality. Well, I would tell you at Geisinger, we're trying to do just that, only we're trying to improve quality at the same time. So that's our true north of, of where we're trying to go. And I think that while you could say there's an awful lot of innovation going on, I mean, does everybody have to do it? Um, we want to be that someone and that somewhere that really cracks the, cracks the ball out of the park. What is it about being back on the provider side now that you know differently that you can do better having done five years of government service? So having started my career at the bedside, I was a registered nurse, um, and then worked in several different areas and finally uh, as president and CEO of a hospital, I recognized um, that there were many, many individuals, including myself, that wanted to make a difference and wanted to um, try to improve patient care, improve our community, um, and just realized under the current fee-for-service system, it was very difficult to do. Um, the incentives aren't correct. Um, having to do, having the ability to do more, um, like with your community, was was much more difficult. So after having um, the experience at the Innovation Center, I always loved looking at uh, looking at healthcare from different perspectives and recognized that doing more of the same wasn't going to help us. So coming back to the health system um, after that innovation experience, I think is really what drove me to uh, that and David Feinberg. David Feinberg is the president of uh, at Geisinger, and he is um, uh, he is extremely um, positive about the potential of our health system truly becoming value. Um, it, as you mentioned, Geisinger has a long history of uh, innovation. While I'm uh, chief innovation officer, the, the system has been known uh, for its innovation. So when there's a culture of innovation, um, that is a much healthier environment to try to change the way we uh, change the way we do things. So that really, David Feinberg and the culture of innovation is really what brought me to Geisinger. I guess just putting a finer point on it, you saw how the health system worked from the federal level, from the state level, and you had been, as you mentioned, CEO of a health system beforehand, so it's not like you were starting from nothing. But did that give you a window into how healthcare worked differently that you would not have known? Have oh, not, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the the impact of policy and the, and the um, I know that that sounds to those um, inside the beltway that healthcare providers wouldn't understand the implications, uh, the broad implications of policy and the ability for providers to get engaged. Um, so that definitely, that definitely changed uh, changed my perspective. I always say that I wish I had found public service earlier in my career, um, and I and I advise all early career, um, all early career healthcare professionals to go into public service. But I think the best public servant, particularly in a leadership position, is the one that moves in and out. 
that goes into the private sector and then um, goes or goes into the public sector, then goes back to the private sector, and then go back and forth. I think if you don't do that, you start believing your stuff in either um, in either capacity. You kind of lose the perspective yeah. because you've been inside a yeah, system but too too long. Should a young healthcare worker go into an administration that she might not agree with the policies? For instance, this administration pushes big changes on Medicaid that a lot of young healthcare workers might not agree with. Should that person still go into government service or wait for the politician or administration that he or she identifies with? I can only relate to my own experience. So um, at CMMI, we all had the same passion for, uh, quite frankly, what the Affordable Care Act held. We, we believed in it passionately. Everyone there, we had, I had the opportunity to work with Rick Elfellon, who brought me there. Um, who worked at Geisinger, by the way, before that's where he and I met, um, Pat, Patrick Conway, Karen Del Salvo, uh, Andy Slavitt, you know, all, all of people who truly believe in the tenets of what we were, uh, what we were working towards. So I think for me, that was very important. So the, the, the value of that public service was to believe in the mission and be able to, um, uh, to be able to get up every day and think we're trying to make a difference for the good for the entire nation. You're someone that I had gotten requests for to appear on the podcast from younger folks starting their careers, people in nursing, people who have lived in Pennsylvania and seen the impact of your work. Where should a new younger healthcare person start his or her career at this point? Does it make sense to follow your kind of path, provider side, getting into government eventually, go straight into government, go do work on the front lines, social work? Where would you do it if you were starting today? I think I would never have given up that magnificent opportunity uh, to be at a patient's bedside for me. I mean, for me, um, not only was it the most gratifying of everything I've done up till now, not only was it the most gratifying but later on, in every single one of my positions, it helped me because I understood what patients needed. I understood what families needed. I also got a perspective on life that I understood what's really important and that if you don't have your health, there's not much else that you could have everything else. And I know it sounds cliche, but to learn that um, and to learn that what drives, um, what drives patient care, what drives... Um, when we try to say healthy communities. I, I think that education was far better than any education I ever had in the classroom. My last question. You mentioned your time in the federal government. Everyone believed in the Affordable Care Act. You delivered reforms as the Pennsylvania Health Secretary that got to Medicaid expansion and, and other things that have since changed under the Trump administration. While you're optimistic about opioids, I'm, I'm curious more broadly, Karen, are you optimistic about the direction of public health under this administration? I think, Deanna, in terms as we reflect back on changes um, in administrations and what happens, I think it's up to the public health professionals um, that are both government, um, both at the state and federal level, um, to really keep that in check. So um, I am very optimistic because I worked with wonderful people 
and I know they will continue to rally and they will continue to protect public health. These are the career officials. The career, still in the career officials. Yeah. I'm, I'm both the state and um, both the state and uh, the federal side. I think that um, the funding that has um, the funding that has been lost for public health, and not just um, really over the last ten years, um, we we have to get a better way of funding public health. We can't just fund it during emergencies. So um, I think regardless of what administration you're in, I think that's something um, that we're going to have to work for. But I, ha I have faith in the public health professionals, the careers that will, um, will keep public health front and center, I know, for them. Karen Murphy, thank you for traveling down to Washington, D.C. to talk with me and Pulse Check. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure being here. That is all for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Karen Murphy for coming down to Washington, D.C., and to Mikaela Rodriguez for producing this show. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. My favorite podcast app remains Overcast, and it's heartening to see how many of you are opting for that, too. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.